Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. It's like, yay. Look, last week I was kind of struggling, wasn't I? The rest of you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. They're excited. It's exciting to see kids run off to children's church. They're leaving. It's exciting. But it's also exciting for me to see you opening up your scriptures and getting ready to to receive the word of the Lord this morning. You know, as a pastor for many years... I've been often asked interesting questions about heaven. From little children to grown adults, all these different types of questions. Will I know my wife in heaven? Will my grandmother recognize me? Will I live far away from my family or will I be close to my family? Are they going to live in another part of heaven? Here's the one I always get. How old will I be in heaven? Will I be my 20-year-old self or will I be my 80-year-old self? How old will I be? What about infants that have died in either miscarriages or stillbirth or or abortions? Will they still be infants in heaven or will they be full grown? And if they're full grown, what age will they be in heaven? What about my son Zachary, who's mentally handicapped? I've never heard him speak because he's nonverbal. Will he be able to speak in heaven? Will I hear him talk for the first time? Will there even be family in heaven? Here's my answer to these questions. I have no earthly idea. But when we get to heaven, I'm sure we will find out. There's a lot that we don't know about heaven. A Sunday school teacher was teaching his four and five-year-olds in class, and he was getting them to understand how you get to heaven. And he was basically asking these kids this question, if I sold my house and my car and I had a big garage sale and gave all my money away, would, I, would that get me into heaven? And the kids said, no. If I cleaned the church every day and I mowed, mowed people's lawns and I gave candy to all the kids, would that get me into heaven? And the kids said, no. The teacher said, well, what if I'm kind to animals and I love my wife with everything, and I gave my kids presents all the time? Would that get me into heaven? And the kids said, no. And then the teacher says, well, then how can I get into heaven? And this five-year-old shouted, you got to be dead. <laughs> well, good insight for a five-year-old. That's one thing we do know. you got to be dead in order to go to heaven. So we need to be very careful not to go beyond what God has clearly revealed in His Word. So where God has been silent on things related to heaven... We need to be silent and not speculate. We need to go with what the Scripture teaches us because we really have to admit we don't have all the answers of what life in heaven will be like. There's a lot of unanswered questions. But nevertheless, God has given us some answers. He's not left us totally in the dark. So in the passage for us today, Jesus is approached by a new group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. And they try to trip him up and make him look foolish 
in the eyes of the crowd. So let's read this encounter that Jesus has with the Sadducees in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the man be, or will the woman be, for the seven had her as wife? And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given into marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Well, this passage divides up into two parts. First, you see the trick question, and second, you see the tremendous answer. So let's first explore the trick question. The trick question comes in verses 27 through 33 from these Sadducees. Who, who are the Sadducees? Who are these men? Well, they were the religious leaders of the day, but they were different than the Pharisees. The Sadducees were more from the wealthy class. They were more working in the temple area. And, and these were ones that denied the resurrection from the dead. They did not believe that the soul lived on after eternity. They denied that. You see this in Acts chapter 23, 7-8. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the Sadducees denied angels, they denied demons, they denied the afterlife, they denied the resurrection. And you may ask, well, why did they do this? Why did they deny this? Were they liberals? As a matter of fact, they weren't that liberal in the sense that they were strictly holding to the first five books of the Old Testament. That's all they believed. They did not believe the rest of the Old Testament. The Sadducees said, we are only believing the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and because the first five books do not teach a resurrection, do not teach about angels, do not teach about all these things, we are not going to believe them because they're not in the first five books. So in other words, they picked and chose what parts of the Bible they wanted to believe. Does that sound familiar to a lot, of, a lot of people do today? Picking and choosing. Now, they pose a pretty r- ridiculous hypothetical question to Jesus. Okay, So there was an Old Testament practice, and you can go back to, to Deuteronomy. We'll look at that in just a few moments. So if a man marries a woman and he dies and she produces no offspring 
then the custom, the law was, the brother-in-law had to marry that woman and try to produce a child so that there would be a son to carry on the family name. They had to produce a male heir. And so this comes from Deuteronomy 25, 5-6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother, the brother-in-law, shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this was a common Old Testament practice. But the Sadducees ask a very weird hypothetical question. Kind of an outlandish question. Highly improbable. What did they say? What happens if it happens seven times? Seven times. Seven brothers. Seven brothers-in-law. Who's she going to be married to in heaven? How many pins can dance on the head of a needle? Or, or how many angels can dance on the head of a... Of a all these crazy, weird speculations. Now, what was their purpose? Why were they trying to... Why were they asking this really weird, hypothetical question? Well, they're trying to make the resurrection look ridiculous. They're trying to make it look foolish. They're trying to really make Jesus look foolish. Can you believe that he believes this? This seems kind of outlandish. They wanted Jesus to look foolish. So this is a trick question by men who did not even believe in the resurrection in the first place. So even if Jesus had given a proper answer, they still wouldn't have accepted it because they didn't even believe in the resurrection. So they're trying to trap him up. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to make him look stupid. And we need to remember there will always be religious leaders, pastors, teachers, televangelists, podcasters, YouTubers. There will always be people out there that are religious leaders who will try to lead people astray, that will believe false teachings. We shouldn't be surprised by this. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, there's always going to be people that aren't interested in Christianity. They're going to try to trip you up. They're going to try to make you look stupid. They're going to try to ask that hypothetical question to make you trip over your words and make you look stupid and make you look foolish. They're going to try to do that. And they're going to try to catch you off guard. Now, we need to be prepared for that. We need to be ready to give an answer. You may not know the answer. You may get tripped up. But regardless, we need to be prepared to give an answer. And and, and you do your best, and ultimately you rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. But Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared. To do what? To make a defense. To give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So these Sadducees, these religious leaders, they, try to, they ask Jesus a trick question. They try to trip him up, make him look stupid. That's a hypothetical, highly improbable question. But now Jesus turns the table. So let's spend the majority of our time this morning looking at the second half of this passage of Scripture, the tremendous answer. You can't trip Jesus up. You're not going to make him look foolish. And so instead of giving one answer, 
Jesus really gives three. Jesus gives three truths, three tremendous answers about the resurrection, the resurrection from the dead. Now, remember, after these three proofs or these three truths, Jesus is going to give evidence from the book of Exodus. Now, why is he going to give evidence from the book of Exodus? Because the Sadducees only believed Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They didn't, they didn't believe that those texts taught the resurrection, so Jesus is going to go straight to those books and show how they, in fact, did. It's interesting, when you read Matthew's Gospel, Matthew gives these Sadducees a, sh- a sharp rebuke. He says in Matthew 22, 29, Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. So in Matthew's gospel, he tells the Sadducees, you're wrong. Why are you wrong? You don't know your Bible and you don't know the power of God. Now we could just stop right there. Do you know the power of God and do you know the scriptures? That's a pretty strong rebuke. You're wrong. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. So what are these three truths that Jesus teaches concerning the resurrection? Well, truth one, and this is a very interesting one, This was really the question that set it all up. There is no marriage in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven. If you look there at verse 34, what does he say? Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given to marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, marriage is an earthly covenant. It is an earthly, lifelong covenant between one man and one woman instituted by God. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So marriage is the most intimate, the most fundamental, the most foundational of all human relationships for life. But one of the main purposes of marriage is procreation. It's not just to enter into a loving relationship between a husband and wife, but the Bible is very clear that you want to bring children into the world that you can nurture, that you can love, that you can raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The family is the building block of society. But in heaven, let me just ask you a simple question. Will there be need for procreation in heaven? No. There will be no marriage in heaven. There will be no giving of marriage. Now, this may be a little unsettling to married couples. Have you thought about this? When I get to heaven, am I going to even know my spouse? Is my spouse going to know me? What's going to happen there? You know, a pastor told a story of of a man that was struggling with this idea. He said, I really don't like this idea. And he comforted himself and says, well, I know God's going to not let me be married in heaven, but at least maybe God can can, can he let us be roommates? Maybe we can be roommates in heaven. Maybe we can have the same mansion right next to each other, even though we're not married. Now, here's my personal opinion. I said earlier, don't go beyond what the Bible says. This is my preface this. This is Pastor Sean's personal opinion. It's speculation. I don't have a Bible verse to back this up, okay? So I could be wrong. But here's what I think. This is just my personal opinion. Since marriage 
is such a unique and special and intimate earthly relationship where you love somebody and give your heart to that person. While in heaven you're no longer married, I do believe that there is a special connection between married couples that may be different than you will have with some person from Nigeria who's a believer in Jesus that you've never met. I think that there's going to be some type of connection in heaven even though you're not married. I could be wrong on that. Now, this may disappoint married couples here today. I'm not going to be married in heaven. But it could be, give great hope to singles. If you're single here this morning, this may give you great hope to think, listen, marriage is not the be-all, end-all. This world makes marriage the be-all, end-all. But in heaven, there's not going to be marriage. And it may give great hope to those that maybe have suffered from a broken marriage. You've had a broken marriage. You've had, you've had a, a marriage that's, that's been disrupted. And maybe you, you've struggled with, with a marriage that has been broken. This may give you great hope to realize that, yes, here on earth, while marriage may be the be-all, end-all, it's not ultimate. In heaven, there is no marriage. There is no giving into marriage. Why? Because the church, all of us together, we are the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. So we may not fully understand all the ramifications of what Jesus is saying here about marriage, but he's very emphatic, there is no marriage in heaven or of giving into marriage. That's the first thing. He answers the question. The Sadducees asked that hypothetical question about seven brothers, and basically Jesus says, listen, there is no marriage in heaven. But then he does give a second truth. Here's the second truth. God makes you worthy of heaven by his sovereign grace alone. God makes you worthy of heaven. Now, I want you to notice the language there in verse 35 because you, you may have maybe gotten tripped up by verse 35. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. Jesus talks about this age, this present earthly age, and the age to come, that final age, heaven. And he says in verse 35, those that are worthy to attain to that. Now you may look at those words and say, worthy to attain. Is that something that I have to do? Do I have to attain heaven? Do I have to be worthy enough to earn heaven? Do I have to do something good enough to be in God's good graces to get heaven? How do I attain heaven? How am I made worthy? Well, the grammar, the Greek grammar in this passage and the rest of the Bible will not allow that interpretation. This is what we call a divine passive verb. In other words, you don't make yourself worthy to attain the way it's worded in the original language is God makes you worthy to attain. God's the one that makes you worthy. God's the one that grants you that access. God is the one that does it. Now, let's ask the question. You don't make yourself worthy to attain eternal life. You can't. You can't do anything good. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace alone. God has to make you worthy to attain to heaven. But how does he do that? 
Well, notice what Jesus says. Did you catch the language that Jesus says? Look at verse 36. For they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and they are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Jesus uses this language of sonship. You're sons of God. You're sons of the resurrection. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, how do you become worthy to attain to the resurrection of the dead? How do you attain to this being worthy to to be in heaven? It's when God adopts you as his child into his family by grace alone. You don't make yourself worthy to enter heaven. You don't adopt yourself into heaven or into God's family. God adopts you into his family. He makes us his children through Christ. So there's a lot of writings of Paul that talk about sonship or adoption or being children of God. Romans 8, 14-17, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, to whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are sons of God through adoption. Galatians 3, 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now you may be thinking to yourself, Why does he use the word sons? Sons of God, sons of God, sons of God. Why doesn't he say sons and daughters of God? Well, in that ancient culture, daughters had no right to inherit property. Only the son would be the legal heir to the father's estate. It was actually legally forbidden for a woman to have that type of status. So Paul is making a radical statement here that all believers, both men and women, are sons of God. Now, as a woman, you may think, well, that sounds kind of weird. I want to be a daughter of God. Well, you're a daughter of God, but you're also a son of God. Now, don't get confused by that. What Jesus is saying here and what Paul's saying here is that you've been elevated to this wonderful status that no woman in the ancient culture could ever have, being an heir of the Father. And so God has adopted us as sons, as daughters, as children into his family by grace alone. Women would never have been called sons of God in ancient Israel. And Gentiles would never be called sons of God. So if you're a woman here today and you're a Gentile, you're a son of God, which would never have been happened in the, in the Old Testament, only through adoption. John 1, 12 through 13 But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not by blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but by God. You see, before you were adopted into God's family, before you were a child, 
you were an enemy. We sang it earlier. You, you didn't have a seat at God's table. You were an outsider. You were a rebel. You were a sinner. You were, you were wretched. You were, you, were, you were lost. And that's, that's what our condition was before God saved us. And so when he saved us through Christ, he took us out of that rebellion, out of that wretchedness, and he gave us a seat at the table. He gave us entrance into the family. He gave us access to the very throne of grace. He made us children. And the only way you're worthy to attain to the resurrection of the dead is because God the Father has adopted you and made you a child of God. God alone makes you worthy to attain to the resurrection of the dead because he calls you a son, a child through adoption. 1 John 3, 1 through 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world, why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. On that day when Jesus comes back, we will see Him as He is. Why? Because we're children of the Father. We can attain to the resurrection of the dead. We've been made worthy through Jesus adopting, or the Father adopting us as children. So that's the second truth. What is the third truth? Believers will live forever with new resurrected bodies. Verse 36, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. They cannot die anymore. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day had good theology about the resurrection. They, they believed in a future resurrection. The Sadducees not. What they didn't understand was that Jesus was the only way that was going to happen. Remember when Lazarus died, Jesus' friend? Lazarus had died. He'd been in the tomb for many days. Jesus goes after three days to his sisters, Mary and Martha. And, and Jesus has this conversation with Martha in John eleven twenty four through 27. Martha said to him, I know that he, talking about Lazarus, my brother, he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Martha says, I know Lazarus is going to raise at the final day, because the Jews of that day had a belief of the final resurrection. But Jesus says, Now wait a minute. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the only way this is going to happen. So we will have not entirely different bodies but new bodies in the sense that they are going to be transformed we will be resurrected from the graves when when jesus rose from the grave his disciples still recognized who he was but yet it was a a glorified body so our bodies will be changed but not replaced it's not like invasion of the body snatchers i don't know how it's all going to happen your body will be changed it won't be a totally different body it'll be a new body It'll be a changed body. It will be a glorified body. It will be a wonderful body. Now, remember the Sadducees. They denied that the Old Testament taught, at least the first five books, a literal future bodily resurrection from the grave. 
So let's just ask the question, what does the Old Testament teach about this? Does the Old Testament, in fact, teach a resurrection from the grave? And I'm glad you asked, Pastor Sean, because yes, it does. Job 19, 25-27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. On that day, Job says, when he comes back, I will see him in this new flesh. Isaiah 26, 19, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. There's Isaiah teaching a resurrection of the dead. Daniel 12, 12, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel taught the resurrection. Now, in verses 37 through 38, Jesus is going to give ex- evidence from Exodus to prove to the Sadducees who thought that Exodus would not teach about the resurrection. So what does Jesus say there? Verse 37, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not God of the dead, but of the living for all who live to him. So Jesus points back to the burning bush. Where did the burning bush happen? What book of the Bible? Exodus. As a matter of fact, Exodus 3.6 is where Jesus points back to. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, why did Jesus go back to this verse? Well, number one, he goes back to this verse because the Sadducees thought that these verses didn't teach the resurrection. But what what does God say about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How long had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob been, been dead by the time God appeared to Moses at the burning bush? Those guys have been dead for a long time. And what does God say? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of them. He says, I am their God. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying that even God speaking to Moses at the burning bush said that although Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, they're still alive. They're in heaven just awaiting the resurrection. Because the Sadducees denied that there was any type of eternal life. And so Jesus goes right to Exodus to basically show these guys that, yes, even the founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they died, but they're living because God is their God, and they're in heaven now, and one day they will rise from the grave as well. So what does the New Testament teach about the resurrection? Well, Jesus says in John 5, 25-29, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming. And it's now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There will be a resurrection. John 6, 39-40, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks at the Son 
believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus teaches about a future resurrection, but listen to how Paul describes it. In 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we will be changed. This is not just a theological truth for you to believe to win a trivia contest. Does the Old Testament teach resurrection? Yes. Does the New Testament teach resurrection? Yes. Great theological truths. Yes. But this should be a foundation that goes deep within your soul to give you joy and peace. Do not raise your hand, but how many of you have aching bodies? How many of you just long for that day when you no longer feel pain in your body? There's no longer suffering. There's no longer COVID. There's no longer cancer. There's no longer all of these things that plague our earth. It gives us great comfort to know that in the trials that we are facing right now, in these frail bodies, this is not it. It's not our future. Romans 8, 23. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're, we're groaning. We're groaning for that day. Listen to what John Stott says. Our groans express both present pain and future longing. Some Christians, however, grin too much. They seem to have no place in their theology for pain, and they groan too little. They grin too much, and they groan too little. 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4. For in this tent, talking about the body, in this tent we groan, longing to be put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in the tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. We groan. We wait we ache, we suffer, there's disease, there's death, there's calamity, all the things that plague this world, we, we, we long to be rid of it. And we're stuck with these bodies for now. And Jesus says that's not the end. We eagerly await that redemption, that glorified new body to live forever with Jesus. It gives us hope. Romans 8, 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies 
through His Spirit who dwells in you. He'll give life to your mortal body. Philippians 3, 20-21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. He will transform our lowly body to look like His glorious body. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again bodily from the grave. He's in heaven right now interceding for us as our great high priest. And one day He's going to come back in power and in victory. And on that day that He comes back, He's going to raise us from the dead. If you're still alive, you get to be caught up in the air. If you're dead, you get to go first and be raised up. Either way, we will be changed with new glorified bodies. And that's why Paul could say in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now I told you that Jesus said there will be no marriage in heaven. Halfway true. There will be no earthly marriage between husbands and wives in heaven, but there will be a marriage in heaven. What does Revelation 19, 7-9 tell us? Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. There will be a marriage in heaven. Not between earthly husbands and wives, but between the bride of Christ, the church, and Jesus on that final day. Where we will feast with Him and celebrate Him as our bridegroom forever and ever. So, what do we get to look forward to? That's a good question. What do we get to look forward to? I can think of nothing better than Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let us bow before Jesus this morning who died on the cross and rose again and will come back one day in power and glory and transform our lowly bodies to be like His in a glorious resurrection. What a future we have in store for us on that final day. Father, thank You that You are our great and mighty God. 
that sent Jesus to be our great and mighty Savior. And Jesus, I'm thankful that you not only rose from the grave yourself, but you were the first fruits of what's going to happen to us. That on that final day when you come back, you will raise us to new life. To live with you forever with a new, changed, glorified body. No more pain, no more crying, no more suffering, no more death. We'll be raised to new life to have the ultimate marriage supper of the Lamb. To live forever with you in heaven in our new glorified bodies. And Lord, that gives us great hope. And Lord, I just pray this morning if there's anybody that's in this room that's just struggling with a health issue. Maybe it's chronic pain. Maybe it's just an illness. Maybe there's something in their life that's just causing them pain. Or maybe somebody's grieving the loss of a loved one they've recently lost to the final enemy death. Would you bring encouragement to this room this morning, Holy Spirit, that that pain will go away one day. We'll be reunited to our loved one in heaven one day if they are in Christ. This earthly dwelling is just temporary. Lord, would you give hope to those that are hurting this morning? Give them hope of their future. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know for sure that on that final day they're going to be in heaven, that today's the day that they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They would trust in Jesus alone to make sure that they know on that final day where they're going to go. And Lord, if they don't know, would they make it clear today and maybe they need to ask some questions after the service or talk to someone. So Lord, we thank you for our future. A future of hope, a future of joy, a future of victory. When we get discouraged and depressed and and bogged down with all the pain and trials here, help us to remember this this is not it. We have a future. And it's, it's, it's in heaven with you, Jesus, is our ultimate prize. We love you, we honor you, and we thank you, Jesus, for being our great and risen Savior. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen and amen.